This podcast is for the sales professionals at every level. If you want to convert more prospects into paying customers, then you're in the right place. Because Joe has spent the last three decades mastering buying behaviors, personality types, emotional and logical triggers. This is the Sales Genius Podcast. It's only a numbers game if you want educated. It's time to get educated. Let's go. Educated. Wanna learn how to close deals? Wanna learn how to sell more? That's what we're here for at Sales Genius. Let's go. I'm sorry. Okay, so it says meeting is now streaming on Facebook. It hasn't shown me yet, but when we hear us talking again, oh, we are there. Yay. We are live on Facebook. So let me mute ourselves on Facebook so I can still see the comments. Hey, everybody over on Facebook. Uh, we have a fantastic day here. Welcome to War Games Group Call. Uh, I'm excited to bring out to you Miss Mary. Let me say it again. Growth? Growthy. Growthy. See, if I, I, I've already messed it up eight times, so she's good. But so Mary Grothy, uh, I'm excited because we connected on LinkedIn. She's got a fantastic resume. She sold millions of dollars of products and services to her to business to business for years. And then she left selling for someone else and said, you know what, I want to help fix other companies. And so she went and set herself up with her company, Sales BQ, that's behind you. And unlike what other people said earlier, it says revenue behind her. (laughs) Ryan said, your recovery partner. We're like, well, kind of for your company. Yes. But, but yeah, so she, she's able to go in with her company and she's going to be able to save businesses that are failing on their own. And so it's, it's a fantastic opportunity for a business that's hurting to actually come in and say, oh my goodness, let me actually have somebody help me. And her team actually executes the plan instead of saying, here's our recommendations and bailing out as a lot of consultants do. So I just want to say everybody welcome to Miss Mary Grothy. Thank you so much for taking time out and coming in. I'm going to put you center screen right now. Perfect. You're there. So welcome. I've got... There's a bunch of people on Facebook saying hello to you, Mary, so that's a good thing. Yes. And so we got Norbert, Larry Schneider, we got Luigi, who's on both now. (laughs) Weldon showed up on the other side as well. So everybody said hello to Miss Mary. So Miss Mary, talk to me. Tell tell the group exactly what you've been through, how you got to the point you're at, and then what you can do to help them to sell one more product today and every day going forward. Yes, my MO in life. Well, let me give you the rundown because a little bit of my backstory helps make this come to life a little bit. I grew up in Northwest Indiana. I grew up in the performing arts. It was a pretty cool opportunity to have an actor, an opera singer for a dad and a pianist and choral director for a mom. I was on stage my entire childhood. I've not had a fear of public speaking or performing or really being in the spotlight. In fact, I really like it. The downside of my childhood is it was actually pretty rough and plagued with some alcoholism and abuse and not great things. But the good news of the story, story, (laughs) it does, it does. Um, I learned a lot of survival skills at a young age and would also say that I developed my emotional intelligence because I had an alcoholic parent. And if anyone's ever grown up with an alcoholic parent, you know how difficult it is because you never know what you're going to face that day and how the rules are going to change. So for me, I became aware of emotions and how to pivot and adjust and shift, which turns out is actually one of the great sales characteristics that top performers have. So I grew up with that. It's ingrained in my DNA, all of those components. Well, fast forward, I move out to beautiful Colorado when I'm 14 years old. And within a very short time of living here, I end up fully supporting myself. So at a young age, still in high school, I had a full-time job and was on my own. I thought it was a little rough at the time, but looking back, I'm so thankful because I knew how to budget. I knew how to support myself. And my work ethic was through the roof. I also had impeccable time management skills because I was also on the dance team at my high school, 
and I was working full time and getting straight A's. You share the dance thing with Jaime. (laughs) Amazing. Colonel is on there. Yes. Amazing. Amazing. Look at all the synergy we have going on. (laughs) Oh, we have so much in common. I can't believe it. Um, so this is Mary's fault for saying she's okay with interactivity. Oh yeah. During the during the beginning, before we were having technical difficulties, so she said she's okay with that. So I am. I am. Just interrupt me. Be it'll help keep me concise. Otherwise, yeah. I just get too chatty. But I ended up graduating. I got in a nasty car accident before graduation, and it just altered my career path and my dream and my life. So I had a few rough years, but thankfully. When I was 22, I interviewed with a Fortune 1000 payroll and HR company. I got the job as a sales admin at 13 bucks an hour. I didn't know anything about a professional career. I didn't have a college degree, but I happened to be a sales admin for the number one sales team in the country. I supported the number one sales manager in the country. I had no idea what I was walking into, but what I walked into was a two-year MBA in sales and figuring out this is a career I want for the rest of my life. I got promoted into mid-market sales after two years. I became the number one rep in 30 days. I was the youngest in the entire division, and I still didn't have my college degree, although I was slowly earning it at night with online classes through University of Phoenix. It was really hard when I'm making over six figures at 24 years old and having to earn that online degree. I would sit there at night with a martini and Cheetos and writing an essay. And, you know, I just closed like a hundred thousand dollar sale and just cried my way through college. Like, why do I need this piece of paper? But anyway, um, I did it. I was proud of myself for doing it. And I ended up having uh, two very high performing years as the number one rep. And after the first year, when I sold 758,000 on a $150,000 quota, they said, okay, that's more than number two and three combined. So we need to figure out what you're doing. We'd like to see more of that. So they did what every great sales organization does. They cut my territory in half and they doubled my quota. And then they asked me to train up reps and managers across the country, which I said yes to all of the above. And I, I was able to do that. So I, I, for the first time, built a sales playbook, wrote down my process and trained people. Everybody saw an increase in performance. It was a phenomenal second year in sales. At that point, I left for, to work for one of my clients, took a uh, VP of sales and marketing position, which is a big title for a young lady. Mm-hmm. And I figured it out. We ended up quadrupling the company's revenue in a seven-month period. And it was the first time my skills are really put to the test in a small business environment and having to scale it from the ground up. I fell in love with the work, started my first consulting firm called Butterfly Creative, spent three years, helped 36 business owners that were small, sub 500,000 in revenue. They all grew, wrote my first book from concept to profit in 60 days. And then I realized I was very tired and I was a starving entrepreneur and I was poor because all of that sounds great but I didn't know how to price for my services. I didn't know how to delegate. I had a lot more maturity that I needed to figure out in life, but I met my now husband and I went back to the payroll company because we had really big dreams of getting married and buying a house and having a baby and those things are expensive. And I knew a payroll company that would very gladly take me back and pay for that. So I went back for three years, I crushed it, sold millions, broke more records. In my last year there, I was pregnant. I only worked nine months out of the year. I would argue I really didn't work the last month of my pregnancy, so probably eight months. And I ended up finishing number seven. I sold one of the top 10 largest deals in history at full price, no discount, which they were absolutely flabbergasted with seeing that come through because it was such a large deal. And then I took that six-figure commission check and I thanked them all profusely for the opportunity that they had given me twice, eight total years combined, two different stints. I owe that company so much for training me up and teaching me what I need to know in sales. I started Sales BQ. We're almost three years old now. We have served over 150 companies and our whole mission in life is to restructure how the company is earning revenue. We go in, I have a team of 10. I employ experts who are brilliant in their functions of marketing, sales, and customer success. And as a team, they go in as a unit to a company, typically between five to 50 million in revenue that is struggling or cannot, or they've plateaued and they just cannot figure out how to get to the next level. We go on contract for six months. We audit, we figure it out. We identify the gap. We build the recommendations and we don't just build the structure for it and say, here you go. 
we actually do the work and we'll stick around for six months. 90% of our clients renew and we're there for about 12 to 18 months. We've helped many companies, even in the large multi-million dollar companies, double, triple and hit incredible points of growth. And then that's me. And I have an amazing husband and my sweet baby just turned four and he's gorgeous and I'm obsessed. And I had this panic moment with knowing I'm only having one child. So I ended up getting this tattoo this, this last week, which is a mama holding a baby or me holding mine because I had an emotional breakdown, which happens in life, but that's me. You're on mute, Joe. <laughs> Actually, that, that's by request from everybody on the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I put but, in uh, that request. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, in looking at it, uh, Luigi said, what was the name of the book? Cause woo, you do talk fast Chicago. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and then, so what was the name of the book? Is it still available for sale? It is. So here's my disclaimer on it. I wrote it early in my career and every 27 year old knows everything, right? <laughs> it's a joke. Um, so I look back at it. I think that there are some good things in there that anybody can pull out of it. I know that I've matured as a business owner and as an entrepreneur, it does need a revision. It's not in the works right now. I'm currently writing a book with Jeffrey Gittimer. And so that one's going to come out first. And then I do need to redo this book, but please, um, it's inexpensive on Amazon. And so enjoy it. I still think you can pull out some nuggets and it's called extreme business building from concept to profit in 60 days. It may just be difficult of a title. <laughs> right? It's an extremely <laughs> difficult title. Yes. Yeah, so when I reference it, I just call it from concept to profit in 60 right. days. That, I was going to say that would definitely make sense that goes through. So, um, so I'm intrigued side note, before you start telling us, this is how they should sell. So you go into a company, they're at 5 million, they've plateaued, they can't do anything. And they say, I want to go. So you mm -hmm. sign up on a, con a contract of six months, right. Or a year, then you come in, your team sits down, becomes their VP of sales, VP of marketing, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Now, does the existing team, shadow along with them so that they can break away later or is it something where you then recruit for the replacement of the person who couldn't get them past the plateau it's all of the above because every company is different so our approach is as unique as every single company that we get to work with in some instances we have a killer leadership team they're just lacking that specific eye that's going to take them to the next level and so our team can work harmoniously with them and really be their ally remove their roadblocks and make it happen other times too, we see that we have great leadership teams, but they're so in the weeds and they're so reactive to the needs of the business. They're stretched too thin. And so executive leadership will say, Hey, we need this initiative. I would like for you to investigate and start an inbound marketing funnel. And they're like, great, we'll get right on that. And then six months later go by and nobody's jumped on the initiative. So that's super common is there's vision and there's ideas, but there's no bandwidth for the existing team to do it. We hear that feedback consistently after our first 30 days, we hear almost every single time you've done more in 30 days for our company than we've been able to accomplish in the last several years. And so again, to me, I, I look at it and say a $5 million company should somewhat have some of their shit together. Yes. Right? And so when you look at that, that, is that what we're saying that all of a sudden everybody's so busy doing the job that they can't, so that you're in the business as opposed to working on the business? Yes, and do you, exactly. Do you see that it starts at the CEO and what he's hiring for? Because yeah. I think at some point you may have to walk in and just start smacking the CEO to, to re-envision it. So unfortunately, it's more common than not that the CEO is the problem. And I feel like I can say that because I am the CEO now and I can see the reflection in the mirror. When we go into an organization and we're helping them with their challenges, a lot of it, it's the CEO. And it's a great reflection for me because if we look at some CEOs that we've worked with in the past and I, I can identify, those are some qualities that I don't want to have as an executive. And I don't want those bottlenecks in my company. And I don't ever want to turn into that, or I don't ever want my team to feel that way. And so one, it's a great learning lesson for me, but ultimately, yes, the CEO can be a huge bottleneck. So we see two different kinds of CEOs, typically one that's just too involved and they have to have their hands in everything and it slows everything down or their people don't feel empowered to just get the job done themselves. They may micromanage, they may have a level of standard that just cannot be achieved. And there's a lot of different variations of that CEO. Then we have the CEOs that take eight vacations per year and they're each four weeks long. 
do the math. And we've had clients like that where we're trying to move initiatives forward and we're like, they're where? The CEO's where? For how long? Didn't they just go on vacation? Right. And I'm thinking, are you, what are you doing? Like, are you running the company or what? Because if the CEO wants that lifestyle, look, I'm all for it. But then you have to give full decision-making authority to your next level leadership. You, you, the, we, you can't have both. You can't want to control everything and be the yes or no, but then never be present. Right. I was going to say that that leaves every department head to run on their own and do nothing. Weldon said they end up running in automatic mode and nobody looks at things that need to be mm. tweaked or changed. Right. That's what he That's said. Very about. true. That's very true. Yeah. He's kind of smart. That Weldon. <laughs> so, but yeah. So I look at that and I say, okay, so now I've got a CEO that's driving us in or not driving us. <laughs> I think that's what it is. Right. One mm -hmm. is way in the, in there and, and just buckled down into everything. So they become the built-in bottleneck or I have one that's not out there and it's just, everybody's flying by the seat of their pants. Yes. So, okay. So then you step in, you fix them and you go through what's the first things you look for in the yeah. thing. So we get in, we automatically go check CEO's a problem, right? Let's go to the next one. What is there? So is there something that you always walk in and go, the first place we look is here? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, the first place we look is actually about a hundred places <laughs> at one time, because it's never just a single point of failure. In my opinion, there are so many different root causes of why revenue isn't growing. And there, you have to solve them all at the same time. I can't imagine walking in and just saying, I think this is your biggest challenge. Let's just focus in this area. We have a lot of experts on our team. And so when we go in, we have, um, it, it probably is close to 100 questions that we go through with the leadership team and the key stakeholders in the company to truly understand buzzword, the customer journey. <laughs> but we want to know what is the experience from the very first touch point in marketing and how you're attracting that customer. So not even confirmed traffic to the website yet, but what's happening from a brand awareness standpoint, because if we're not communicating and setting correct expectations from day one, we could actually be causing problems down the funnel when we win somebody or even in customer success and ongoing service. If there's misrepresentation of what's going to happen with the brand or product or service, but that could be one area, but we want to look at infrastructure. Um, we would look at people, process, and we look at the data because opinions are valuable, but data is priceless. But when we can put it in buckets of people in process, process is gonna be all about the infrastructure and systems. And we want to see what can be automated that's currently being done manually. We wanna look at the tech stack and understand if they're paying for technologies that are helping or hindering, if there are technologies they're not using that they should be that can replace some manual work. But then we look at the people because technology is only one component. People actually have to show up and do the work. And so there's a talent development strategy that we look at that's both a subjective analysis and a data-driven analysis because we need to see how people perform in their roles in all revenue functions from marketing to sales to customer success. Because it's not fair that the make or break of revenue performance is resting on the sales team's shoulder. Like marketing has to do their part and then operations or customer success, they have to follow through and do their part as well. Plus there's rest, less pressure on sales for that year over year net new business growth if it's not in replacement of attrition. So when you are losing clients because your customer service is poor or you don't have anything in place for retention or you're not nurturing your existing clients, your competitor will be if you're not, then it puts more of a weight on the business to say, you know, hey, we had a net loss of X amount. Now, not only do we need to replace that, but sales needs to grow on top of that. So sales is always where it falls to be responsible for that growth. But if we can get customer success and increase their retention, if we can have marketing work across the full spectrum of the customer journey, not just on the front end to attract, marketing can actually help customer success in retention and lead nurturing with or not lead nurture, but, but nurturing the relationship with the clients and potentially getting referrals out of them and word of mouth, et cetera. But when you look at the whole spectrum, I mean, that's, we have to, we can't just pinpoint in one single area. It has to be all of it. Yeah, I, I love that. So I, I typically will go in for companies and I, I tell them, I will outline your, your customer service process and look for the potholes <laughs> that you built in to the journey for your, your customer. Because I, I see way too many companies that do that. They build in the transitions in the middle that don't need to be there where a customer can get lost. And I say, it's the same thing. I'm a car, car nut. So to me, you drive down the road. If you hit a pothole, it may just be disturbing and shocking, 
Okay. Or it may throw you out of alignment or it may do damage. Mm-hmm. Right. And in any of those mm-hmm. situations, you're losing a customer in your process. Why do you have to hand it off to this, this department to hand it back to this department? And it's all because at the time there was somebody grumpy in the first department who didn't want to do an extra job. Right. right? And they were like, grumpy. that's not my thing. I'm not going to do that. Blah, blah, blah. That was my polite way of throwing it out there. But, <laughs> um, and then which everybody else is like, he was polite. I don't get it. But when you look at that, I see that you've totally wasted that. And so is that something you look at and you find in most of these companies? Because I, yes. I do agree with you. Everybody blames sales. Well, sell more, sell more, sell more, where, right, the cheapest, the cheapest product sold is the one to an existing customer, right? Yeah, I've ran exactly. software teams and said, okay, great. Let's, I had a bump team. That's what I called them. They were called performance managers, but right. The answer was you were the one that went in and when they bought the first package, you went in and bumped them for additional second and third, because the first one did so well for them. And so when you sit down and walk in and say, okay, I've got this down, I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm, I'm looking at it right after sales. Cause of course we all look there first. What do you see is the biggest breaking point for these companies? Cause you, you see it all right with your team, you know, exactly where to look and what to go through, as you said. So what is the trigger point that you see after I get out of sales, I'm looking at this department, you look at all hundred, okay. we got it, but <laughs> so. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I think going to the customer journey, like you said, first is really important. How are we servicing and retaining customers? Because the customer is going to tell that story better than anyone else. So I really align with you on that that we have to figure out what we're doing there. It, why would we win more business if we can't even service and retain the business that we have and create brand ambassadors that refer us? Because word of mouth and referrals is gonna be your greatest path to revenue growth in most instances. And so that's where you gotta go there first. So I love that you said that. Then I would back up to marketing because I, again, everything does fall on sales because sales is responsible, it is sell more, sell more, sell more. The other thing is, we've had so many companies where the marketing department's been tasked for lead or demand generation. But you know, if they, if it's not successful, sales then is responsible for prospecting too. No, they either are or they're not. We either have an inbound marketing funnel and we do lead generation or demand generation at this company, or we don't because salespeople are either a hunter, they're, they're net new business. They're, they're focused on prospecting. They love that. They, they're, their DNA screams it. In fact, that's all they want to do. They, they get the yes, they get the signature. They never want to talk to the client again. They are there, they're hunting, they want to open up new conversations. There are other types of salespeople that have zero hunting gene in them, but they're brilliant salespeople. But they are set up for success when a qualified meeting is set for them. And they do their due diligence and research and they show up prepared and they execute beautifully. They follow through, they build a relationship with the customer. It's a pristine handoff. To implementation, but they don't have the prospecting gene. Majority of salespeople do not have the prospecting gene. Yet we expect the majority of salespeople to be proficient in prospecting. So all these organizations, what we go into, we hear time and time again, we want more at-bats for our sales team. They need more meetings. They're not great at prospecting. And then I hear, well, we tried this with marketing and we're really looking at filling the funnel and we want to go these different directions. But at the end of the day, if marketing doesn't perform, the salesperson's responsible for having enough qualified meetings per week. I love that philosophy because I think that's a winner's philosophy, but it's not realistic. You can't ask an elephant to be a cheetah. It's not how it works. And if it's not your DNA, then you're being tasked with work that you don't want to do. It's energy draining and you're not good at it. So you don't get great results. And then it ends up eating up majority of your time. And then it creates tension between you and your manager and eventually it could cost you your job. And so for us, I would say the next area of focus is marketing. Now, some companies don't have a marketing inbound funnel. They have a team of BDRs or SDRs, which are business development reps or sales development reps that are focusing in the world of outbound prospecting. And I'm fine with that because it's still lead generation that's going to really talented salespeople. So I think one of the biggest problems that we solve is this myth of the sales unicorn. The sales unicorn is a sales unicorn or the salesman of yesteryear, back before we had automation and technology and high-performing websites and conversion and social media, access to profiled prospect data. The sales unicorn was required to do it all. That was me back in 2008 when I started selling. 
is I didn't have any of those things. Every email I ever sent <laughs> was typed by myself and hit the send button manually. LinkedIn was in its infancy. Yeah. I can't believe I'm only 36 and I'm starting to tell stories like when I was selling, all we had was Back the when I was book. a kid, <laughs> it was this one. Yes. The, the point is the sales unicorn doesn't exist anymore. Don't, don't set up your sales infrastructure to where the salesperson has to do it all. It's not fair. And salespeople aren't being bred and coming up the ranks to be able to do a full cycle sale. There's, they're few and far between. Agreed. And so it's time for companies to actually invest in the technology and automation and with experts who can build. There are some phenomenal marketers out there. I think marketing is this big general term that people don't quite understand <laughs> how many different pieces and components there are to marketing. And you have specialists in each of those areas and you have to rely on them to build a working engine. And so I think that that's the next area that we would go is to really determine their threshold for making an investment in marketing so they can actually fill the funnel and set up the sales team for success because most salespeople that I've met that are top performers, it's just a waste of time for them to be doing prospecting. They are so skilled in the sales conversation. If you could triple the amount of meetings they had per week, they will triple what they produce. Absolutely. So um, before we go into tell somebody how to sell. So most of the people that are here um, I, and on Facebook that are going through, we've had some more people jump on. Um, they're entrepreneurs, they're coaches, they're in financial services. So even if they work for an organization, everything's left on them. And a lot of them mm -hmm. do have to do, go out and, you know, hunt yourself and, and come back. And yes. I'm in complete agreement that there are people that can hunt, but they're very, very rare because nobody likes doing a lot of the work with no result. So I'd much rather have a qualified lead that comes in. So, um, what would you say is your biggest turnaround percentages wise and things like that? So like the big, I have um, a big feather in my cap, right? What would you say is your biggest turnaround that you had to go in and save and is the, uh, my proudest moment? <laughs> for a company or for proudest sales moment BQ. in my own? Yeah. For no, sales no. BQ? Yes. Yeah. Um, oh, <laughs> we've had so many, I just can't. Oh, very nice, very nice, yes. <laughs> Um, All of and, my success is just so hard to catalog. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's just too much, too much. Right. Uh, we, we definitely have some really great success stories. One of them is our prime case study right now that we're finalizing and going to be pushing out for people to see. It was truly a remarkable experience that we got to inherit a very small responsibility of a team. They, there's a, a large sales organization. I say large, there's probably 15 not that large, there's 15 salespeople. And they had a small marketing team and they had one inside salesperson. And we were brought on for one project, which was to build out the inside sales team and to bring in two BDRs and a second ISR. That's all they wanted us for. They said, hey, we want to do like a pop-up sales, inside sales team. We need them live and ready to go January 1. Well, we had six weeks to build the playbook, the infrastructure, the technology, the systems, and then recruit and hire and bring this team on board. We, during that time, when we opened up the audit, we very quickly found out that there were some gaps in marketing. And so uh, immediately our scope increased and we were asked to sit with the marketing team, which was, I'm so glad that they did because we were working on the handoffs from marketing into this BDR team or ISRs. And without fixing that, that would have been a problem for sure. So when we were brought in to do that component, it really opened up the floodgates for leads. And then we were able to go to work. So I, we, <laughs> I wish I had the case study in front of me so I could give you the exact numbers, but I will have this published out so that you can see it. The chart in itself, the graphic in itself is out of this world. Within six months of working with them, we generated more pipeline than they've ever had in history of their department. And I mean, I don't know if this is set up for me to share my screen or not, because I could show you if you want to see it, because I'm feeling like I'm lacking right now in my in my description of this. Do you want me to share it or does that not translate through? Share it, share it. Okay. You heard me? Yeah. You're muted, Joe. Luigi said share it. So okay. I think I just made you co-host, so you should be able to share. Excellent. Bear with me. And so while she pulls that up, guys, one of the things that I had to learn myself as I transitioned into everything is solely on me as a, as an entrepreneur is building that, that actual case study 
where you can show somebody the successes that went through. So as I talked to people and went through, they were like, okay, well, what have you done? And as stupid as it is, I had to show them a piece of paper or a graphic, a PDF to say, this is what I've done instead of just the testimonials from the clients that I had. So the answer was, well, what did you do? And I'm like, well, we doubled this or we tripled this. And then when you put it on a piece of paper and you put it in the, a fancy PowerPoint template, and as you say it, all of a sudden they go, oh, wow, it must be true now. And a lot of us don't take the time to do that. And so I would say this, what she's sharing with you right now is going to be gold for you because it is your success and where you got from where you were. Yes, I would agree with that. Back when I was selling payroll and HR services, nobody wants to listen to another sales rep tell them, yes, oh yeah, we can do that. Oh yeah, we've had tremendous results. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, we can make that happen. They want to see it. So here are some of the graphs that are really exciting that I wanted to show you. So this is the team that we created from scratch and you can see the call volume and the outbound significantly increase over time. Additionally, these are some of the stats that we get excited about. One of the biggest pains of executives is that they hire sales people and then they have this forever ramp. So they're expensive and it takes them a year to perform or before they really start doing anything. And we don't believe in that. I don't like to give out um, uh, these, these long ramps. It's like train the person, get them successful in the role. So within six months in the role, we had... 118%, 93% of quota, and then they, and then the, B, the BDR was 150% of their quota, which is booked appointment total. So I love seeing Quota Crushers. That's the name of our podcast is Quota Crusher Podcast, because it's not just about hitting your quota. I don't care about that. I want people to exceed their quota. I want quota to be the baseline minimum to keep your job. I'm interested in crushing quota and actually setting a goal and having that performance. And so sharing and that wisdom with these young, with this young sales team and seeing that was exciting. So here is pipeline history by week. So I'm gonna show you where we started our engagement. We came in um, in November. So it looks like we had four weeks in a row and then you can start to see the slow climb. And this is where we were building the infrastructure and we brought in the new team and then here you go. So this was absolutely record breaking. If you look year over year from today, versus last August, you can see the dramatic difference that we had in the pipeline. So one of the success stories, as well as we care about KPIs and we shortened the sales cycle and we increased the close rates. And so I don't know if I've already scrolled past it. I think I may have, but we took a close rate from something like 11% to 43%. If you can take your pipeline and close triple the amount, you're winning. <laughs> That's yeah. an easy way to increase revenue. So those are the markers that we that we care about. But anywho, this is our case study. Thank you for letting me share that with you and of we'll course. get this published out. Of course. So fantastic. Okay, so let's give everybody in here um, one thing that they need to implement now starting to do so that they can sell another product today and then every day going forward. Yeah. Well, you, you talked about your profile of who we're talking to right now. So if a lot of you are small business owners, you're the entrepreneur that has to sell the client as well as service or bring it to the company and whatnot, but you're the face of the company, everybody loves a referral and everybody loves a partner. So there's one thing that I would do is get laser focused on your ICP, which is ideal client profile. So step number one, who's your absolute favorite type of client to serve? Get that specific, get it right, know who they are. Do not take on business just because somebody is willing to write you a check. That's also an old term. I'm getting old because they're willing to pay you money. Don't take them on just because of that. You have to make sure that they fit because a client that's willing to pay you, that's cash in the pocket today. But if they're not the right ICP, they're very expensive long-term and they will eat all of your margins. They become a pain in the rear. You're not going to want to answer your phone when they call. They don't refer you. They're never happy. Like don't take the easy bait because they're willing to pay today if you can't see a long-term strategy with them. So get your ICP, ideal client profile, right. Then what I would recommend is to find a peer or partner that sells a non-competing service to the exact same ICP. So for example, when I'm selling in payroll, I partnered up with health insurance brokers. We sold to the exact same CFO, but we did not compete. 
but he had relationships that I didn't have. And I had relationships that he didn't have. And so together we were power partners and it was a lot easier rather than me cold prospecting to get really warm introductions and getting walked into opportunities as a CEO or executive, having power partners that are other CEOs and executives could be a dream come true for you because CEOs have more clout, more than a salesperson. So go find a buddy that is also an executive that has extreme clout with their network and with their clients with a non-competing service that sells to the same ICP, become very good friends with that person, trade books of business and get in there and figure out how you can do that. So Power Partners is where it's at. I know that every time I've started in a new sales territory or any time, like for SalesBQ, I also do business development for our company. And I, I know how to make my life easy. I have done this before. I have people that refer us business and they get our value prop. So that's the next step too. When you're building a relationship for a power partner, please make sure they understand what you do <laughs> because nothing's worse than getting a bad referral and then your power partner's all excited about it. And then you have to break the news to them that that was not a good referral and you can't work with them because if you don't take or get excited about referrals that are being passed to you, it could discourage the person that's referring. So make sure that you are super clear on the type of referral that you want. So sit down with this person, help them understand the day in the life of the person that buys from you, who that perfect prospect is, and the, help them understand the pains and problems that you solve, not necessarily the products and services that you sell. Because like, if you're in financial services, I hate to break it to you, but there's like a million of you in financial services out in this world. So what's your differentiating factor? Because you go to find a power partner, they're gonna be like, yeah, okay, sounds great. I'll definitely keep you in mind. Or, you know, if you're a realtor or if you're a CPA or if you're an attorney or if you're a chiropractor or if you're in any of those types of roles where there's a lot of you out there, if you don't have your differentiating factor, you have to answer the question, what's in it for me? That's the radio station playing in the prospect head is a WIIFM. What's in it for me? Everything you do has to be translated into a language that will resonate with them and they understand. So that's the next, I don't know what step I'm on. One, two, three. That's step number three <laughs> is making sure that they understand <laughs> exactly what a good referral is. Then step number four is creating cadence of communication. It's not just a one-time thing. With my power partners, we met every other week. We didn't just get together for beers and talk about our lives. That sounds fun, but that's not business. We would do breakfast or lunch meetings and we would bring our laptops. We'd open up our laptop, laptops. We'd have a printed off list or notebook or a sheet on our laptop that had everybody we met with this week, any re new relationships we won, anybody that we met with but didn't convert or that may be a good fit. And then we would sit there and just change introductions. We would write it for each other, sometimes even switch computers and sit there in each other's email and send off introductions for ourselves through the other person, if that makes sense. But we got down to business and we made it happen. The next step, what I would recommend is when you, so I think we're on five, when you get the introduction is for those of you that are really, really proud of your company, I love that about you already. And I don't even know you. I'm proud about my company too. But you need to be more proud about the problems that you solve and the outcomes that are a result of what your company does. That is the language your prospect wants you to speak because that's what they care about. And so when you do get the meeting, when you do have an opportunity, whether it's virtual in person on the phone with that qualified prospect, is do not waste time spewing about who you are, your products, your services, that you're award-winning or recognized or this, that, and the other. You have to earn the right to share. And you earn the right to share based on qualifying and uncovering their problem. And why it sounds so elementary, but I've had the privilege to sit in probably a thousand or 2000, I don't know, sales meetings. And when you're in the hot seat, and you're in the moment, you just start spewing and you go. I've been a part of sales meetings where I want to kick somebody under the table because they've been going on for 15 minutes and the prospect is sitting there like, okay, like what is happening? So you've got to have your questions that built. So we call them discovery questions. You should have a unique set of questions for every prospect meeting that you're going into. Some are going to be the same questions you need to ask every time, but you should customize the questions on there based on the information you already have about that person. So take a few minutes to look them up, 
we call that profiling. Look them up online, look them up on LinkedIn, look them on the website. If you're referred, ask really specific questions on why you got the referral and any information you need to know about them, but do some research, go in educated. Don't go in and have your first question be, so tell me about you and your company. It's like today and age, you can look up everything ahead of time. It's so much more powerful to go in and say, hey, I've been following you for some time now. And I understand that you've been in business for the last 15 years. And according to LinkedIn, you've actually experienced substantial growth in the last 12 months. What's going on in your business? Tell me what's happening there. If you start with something like that, immediately you level up in their eyes and the higher the level that you sell, get yourself concise because most executives and owners are going to be on the disc scale. If you study that, they're going to be a high D. They don't have a lot of attention to detail. They want to get to the point. Their time's super precious. And so you need to make sure that your questions are very purposeful. They're custom tailored and you're just trying to uncover what problem they have so that you can solve it for them or determine if you can solve it for them or not. And then when you get into your pitch presentation step, whether it's a demo, whether it's just telling them how, you know, what you do for a living, don't have a standard pitch. Don't have a standard presentation. Don't have a standard value prop. Customize it based on what they just told you. Because there's nothing worse than going through full discovery, then going through presentation and then having your prospects say, you know, I think you're, we're probably just too early stage for you. Or I think that you have a lot of bells and whistles that are amazing. We just don't need that much right now. Or, you know, what you have just sounds really similar to what we have right now with our current vendor. It's just really not enough to constitute a change. So you don't want to get this negative feedback where you feel like, shoot, what did I do wrong? If you can custom translate your pitch presentation into their language, specifically aligning your products and services and to the problem that you uncovered and how it solves it and get them to future vision what the next stage looks like for them, that's what's gonna be gold for you. And I think that if you bring in a lot of that credibility and clout as a CEO, especially, or as an entrepreneur and an owner, you can have a higher level conversation than most salespeople can have. And so I think if you're selling to that type of person, you're gonna be set up well. As a CEO, entrepreneur, or executive, if you're selling to a lower level person in the conversation, lower level in the organization, or if you're selling direct to consumer, then you need to understand the day in the life of that person. If they're an end user, if they're a key stakeholder, if they're an influencer, if they are the decision maker, who are they? And be able to tailor your process around that person and just making sure that you're including everybody that needs to be a part of the sale and opportunity. The last thing I'll say, because that was a lot, is if you ever wanna fix your sales approach, do a win-loss analysis. Go back through your last 10 to 12 opportunities that you didn't win and find out why and then look at the trends and solve for that. So for example, if you're losing to price or if you're losing because you don't have a specific uh, feature in your technology, or if you're losing because the geographic area that you can service isn't all encompassing or because of fill in the blank, whatever it is, figure out why you're losing or because you're a small company and they were looking for that big national provider with big name backing, like why are you losing? Find the trends in that and then solve for that. And typically what we would recommend is to bring up the objection in the front part of the sales conversation. So if you're losing to big name providers, my recommendation would be to use that in the very beginning. Hey, we're not as big as ABC National Corporation. Typically throughout the sales process, people will be very intrigued by what we offer and they love that small company, local charm and feel and that dedicated service that we talk about. But when it comes down to decision time, the executive team often feels more comfortable just going with a known quantity and a name that they recognize. Is that a concern of your leadership team? If it is, I want to be sure that we address that on the front end so that we can really put them in ease as we go through this process. So that's a way to bring up a, a win, do the win-loss analysis, reasons why you lose. If you're seeing trends in that, bring it up in the beginning so you can disqualify that objection up front and earn their trust throughout the process. Fantastic. Now, do you see that a lot of that could be contributed back to the lead gen, right? Like maybe I'm getting yeah. the wrong lead or maybe my referral was wrong, right? Absolutely. Because I, when I look at it and say, okay, if they're looking for big name, they're looking for that, that should have been something ahead of time when I go, hey, we have little business here that could help you when you look at it. And then they turn around and go, oh yeah, no, I only, I only like to play with the big boys because some people find status of dealing with a bigger name company mm -hmm. thinks they elevates the status of their own company, right? right? You just need to uncover that because every buyer has their own brain, 
which includes a mindset, and then they have a heart, which is their emotion. And until you understand what's happening between their head and the heart, I mean, that's where they're just their decision is being made. And every buyer is going to buy differently from you. A great salesperson is going to engage in conversation and figure that out. You have to get in their head. You have to understand what you're dealing with. I've watched salespeople never qualify a prospect and they go through the entire process. I'm like, how many hours did that take you to not win? Right. <laughs> that sounds horrible to me. You have to have the discernment on the front end for qualification. And Joe, you know, sometimes we have to have grace with our referral partners. If they send us a flop every now and then, but most of their referrals are pretty good. You can be gentle in that conversation. If you have a referral partner that just consistently, so for example, we don't, uh, we work with corporations that are about five to 50 million in revenue. And we have some exceptions with uh, slightly smaller or larger, but I have people sent to me all the time for one-on-one -on -one sales training. <laughs> and I'm like, we don't offer that as a service. And I have referral partners. They keep bringing me these people. They're like, I'm interested in one-to-one -one coaching. And I'm like, cool. And we just booked a 30 minute meeting on my calendar. Right. <laughs> like, and now I've got 30 minutes about? to deal with a salesperson with no clout. <laughs> and it's just it's one like, person. I, just don't, yeah. I can't help you. You know, I don't have right. anything for you. But also it, it's just being really mindful of the disqualification and being respectful of your time. Fantastic. And again, if you're doing back on step, uh, let's see, you refine your referrals and you defined them for that person then the cadence you were talking about at the time you're exchanging with them, then mm -hmm. again, I could sit down with you and go, okay, Mary, so-and-so was a great referral. Thank you. Right. And then I can go now, so-and-so wasn't really my cup of tea because this is what they were looking <laughs> for. Right. And now we can establish and I can make sure I'm providing the right <laughs> one. You're, you're doing the right one, but it's openness to, to actually talk about it. And I think based yeah. off of your power partners, you, you invested in that relationship with them where you could have that conversation without it being a hurt feeling conversation. Oh, and, it was yeah. mutual because I don't want to send a bad referral either. Right. And so it's a two way street, but yes, both of you should be, be respecting each other's time and ensuring that you're only sending good business their way. And every now and then there's a flop. It's a good learning experience. So Norbert, Norbert gave a nice big boom on Facebook. And so that was a bomb <laughs> right there from Mary. So <laughs> we got Thank that you. one. But all right. So uh, it's 2.55. I need to be respectful of your time and everyone else's. So I want to say any questions for anybody out there that wants to ask Mary a question directly besides, can I come work for you? Okay. So she, she didn't say that there's- I was hoping for one-on-one -on -one coaching, Joe. Yes. That was what I heard. <laughs> I knew it. I'm, I knew it. You're, you're welcome. I'll just right. turn my mic off. Yes. My, my... On that note, I gotta, I gotta tell you, Mike, like on that note, there was such a, such a debate and such a request for that, that at salespq.com, we created a free sales training room. And so any of you can go on there right now, get just enter into the room. You've got to get an access code and you have hours of training and it's recorded or there's reading that you can do or audio video. There's courses that we teach. I release new content at a minimum every month, sometimes multiple times in a month. And so please go in there. And, and my hope is that you will absolutely love it and it will help you. Fantastic. So access the training room. Yeah. So I, I had pulled up the website already. So I'm going to put that over here for Mike on his one-on-one -on -one training. That's there. Mike got really excited earlier because he thought you said Power Rangers, not Power Partners. So I corrected that in the thank chat. For him. Thank you for the correction, Joe. Yes. I appreciate. I you. didn't. I didn't want him to do that. So, okay. Edna's like excited the teal about Ranger free training background and so, yeah. Okay, so now they need to go to the access the training room, and then it says gain access, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So there you guys go. Click the button to gain access. Mm -hmm. Once your first name, last name, and an email, I'm pretty sure you can all get away with that. That's pretty yes. easy. So thank you for that. That makes a lot of sense. Go do this. And I already gave it away. So that way you can provide value for all the referrals, right or wrong. So okay. <laughs> Yes, we had to create that. And that's something I recommend for your business too, is if you have a prime offering that's very profitable for you and there's a really great market for it, but you're consistently getting referrals and you're like, what are we going to do with this? I can't really service that. It's just create a secondary offering that can be as automated as possible that you can funnel through those people because I don't want to turn anybody away. And I don't want you to feel like you have to turn people away either. So if there's a secondary offering or a different division, you can open up over time where you can service a different type of ICP. I highly recommend it. Perfect. 
Anybody else have a question? Luigi typically does when he leans towards the camera, but yes. <laughs> Thomas Bosick. Sorry, I was responding to a text message. Um, so let me ask you a question. With everything that's going on right now, uh, I'm guessing you're focusing more on the inside sales. What changes have you had to done to your business or your client's business under the, the circumstances? Yes, everybody's gone indoors for sales and we have a process that we've done. So first and foremost, we had to tell, and I'm sorry, we had to teach people how to be on camera. One of the first things that we did is we invested in these backdrops or in Zoom backgrounds and had them professionally made. We rolled out a training series on how to be presentable on camera, how to dress, what's distracting, what's not, um, how to capture attention. We talked about etiquette and protocol. <laughs> yeah, what's not distracting, Mike? Thanks. Um, we, we talked about etiquette and protocol as far as how to conduct yourself. Also, how to engage your prospect or your client in a web meeting because they may not have done that in the past. So it's helping them understand how to use the technology and being diligent with it and not spend the first 10 minutes of your meeting playing tech support. N really, Joe, not throwing <laughs> Just joking. But <laughs> I, I was like, wow, she just like drove that bus right over me on that one. Yes. Shots but it's fired. just so Shots true. Fired. It's so true. So for <laughs> everybody who has thing. no clue, it took like 10 minutes to get Zoom and Facebook to communicate. It was seven, it. but nobody was counting. Right. It's right. okay. Nobody. I know. Nobody. I know. But the next thing, Luigi, is you have to change and shift your messaging. But before you can do that, you have to change and shift who you're selling to. So with our clients, we immediately looked at all the industries and verticals that they serve in size of companies. And we were able to help them understand the industries and size of companies that were most impacted. These are no longer, or at least for the short-term viable prospects. And so those were selling into restaurants or hospitality or into healthcare, like probably the worst industries to be calling on. Those that had small businesses, especially service-based businesses or those that were affected by restaurant industries being shut down as an example. Like if you're trying to sell to a CPA firm who 90% of their book of business is restaurants, they're probably not in a great place right now. So you have to look at the snowball effect. So the first thing that we did is we analyzed who are you selling to? And then we shifted the focus to the industries that are actually positioned to grow right now or to spend money or to invest in their future. Then we adjusted the messaging. So we were on the front end of the wave of, I hope you're staying well and healthy or whatever. And on March 17th, we did a webinar of adjusting messaging and we came forth with how to adjust and use empathy in the outbound. Cease all automated outbound right now. Cease all of your scheduled marketing. You have to rewrite everything in this moment because no one's ever experienced anything like this. Bringing an empathy into the conversation, we wrote all the messaging cadences. And then because everybody leapt, you know, the pendulum swung. Now everybody's concerned about your health and safety. Then we had to iterate on that because then it was becoming noise and then we changed it. So it's just constant evolution and making sure that your messaging right now, you can't be on auto. You can't, you've got to be on top of it. And also just viewing, if you're doing any outbound automation on email communication, especially is looking at your cadences and how they're performing with your open rates and click-through rates and doing some A-B testing because we're in a really interesting time. And the way that people are receiving information, we've had a lot of movements, if you will, lately, and corporations are being judged and held to standards based on how they're responding to events. We'll just call it that. And so be mindful of that and how you're adjusting and pivoting. You have to be monitoring the success metrics or the KPIs, I would say, of your outbound messaging. Very well said and tiptoed around. I did like that. So that was events. Yes. As she went through. So Basik, you had a question? I did. Thanks, Luigi. I'll give you some leniency since you, you made a comment of me being on the phone while I was watching this. I was trying to multitask. Close the deal, though. So okay. oh, hey. great job. We're going to give Mary the credit. Well, she was yeah, the inspiration. Well, yes. I, uh, I have two uh, different questions, uh, but my first question, I'll let you answer, then I'll ask the second question. Um, why do you just generally market five to 50 million uh, net? Why don't you go anything above that? Or is it something that you need to be quantifiably uh, gaugeable at first? For us on who we serve in the five to 50 million? Correct. Yeah, we've just learned where we get the best results. So above 50 million, we have to be very strategic and how we work with those companies because a company that's worth more than 50 million in revenue that has problems 
usually has had those problems from a, for a very long time and they're deeply ingrained into the company. And so we can't get the movement that we'd like to see within six months without a lot of times a complete overhaul. And most of those corporations, the bigger you get, they can't move very fast. You can't turn a big ship. And so our team, if you didn't notice, we're very high urgency and I have no idea where that stems from, but we are about solving the problem ASAP and making a change today. A lot of consultants, we've heard feedback, they'll spend months trying to make something happen. But I also think it's the size of company and then below 5 million, they can't justify the investment for working with us. We've had a few companies that have had so many problems with sales and marketing and they've shelled out a few hundred thousand dollars and they're not getting any return that they understand that making an investment in our services makes sense. And we're very diligent in that conversation and ensuring that they're willing to take on the investment to work with us. But we have found the five to 50 million range is that sweet spot where we can get our work done, get remarkable results. And they're so happy to pay our invoice every month. Brilliant. That's what I was thinking. I was just wanted to, you know, <laughs> I, I find a lot of, you know, people in my network, they gear towards that span because mm -hmm. they have, the most profitability, the easiest success in, in region. So my second question is, um, it sounds like on average, most of these companies that you work with, you, you have a six month turnaround time to get everything in order. I love the the expedience that you you portray. You know what, you, we need to get done now. Let's, let's you know, trim the fat as quickly as possible so it doesn't turn into cancerous uh, cells. But um, as you're going along, do you quantifiably uh, gauge that and then present it to the business owner to say, all right, here's the six months. Now this is a process that you can implement and replicate on your own after we walk away and then they can self-sustain the business at that point. Yes. So disclaimer is 90 per, over 90% of our clients renew after six months. Most companies are with us 12 to 18 months. But I want to enter into a six-month relationship because what we offer, we're, we're not a very, there aren't a lot of firms like us that do this. And so it's kind of an unknown quantity. With the investment point and then the breadth of what we do, it can scare some owners. And they're like, holy cow, what are you going to do? So six months feels like, a, okay, we can do that. And so in our first six months, the first 30 days, complete deep dive. We are learning everything. It's our observant shadow, our audit. Two weeks in, we provide a gap analysis of what we believe are top areas of focus between the current state to get them to their desired future state. We gain alignment on the gap, and then our team goes to work for two more weeks to build out the implementation plans or execution plans. The first uh, set of plans are 90 days long, which will take us through months two, three, and four. And the 90-day execution plans are very detailed. They're very uh, uh, transparent and step-by-step. -step. They include budget and detail of our time being spent and the client's time being spent. After that, for the last two months of our first six months engagement, we enter into a 60 day plan, if that makes sense. And we build that last 60 day plan after we get into about uh, three quarters of the way of our 90 day plan. And we'll build out the last 60 days. Once we're halfway through that 60 day plan, so in month five, we discuss renewal and what we're gonna do long-term. We have very few companies that have not renewed, but the ones that have, we're typically on the small side and we do such a big lift in the first six months that they need time to ride out that engine and keep it in place and then we go into maintenance. Perfect. Any other questions before we shut it down? Mary, I wanna say okay. thank you so much. That was great information. And I just like digging in your <laughs> past and figuring out what, what you're doing and how you're doing it. So I appreciate that very much. I have one question. But Luigi has a question is what I was going to say. What is, yeah. what is the best way to, uh, to connect with you? Yes, LinkedIn is my platform of choice. But I've been growing my following on Instagram and Twitter as well. So on Instagram, you'll get to see a lot more of my personal life and my values and my faith. And we're rebuilding, uh, we're renovating a 1950s farmhouse right now, which is a super fun project. So a lot of exciting things more on the personal side on Instagram. Twitter's a mixture of the two. And LinkedIn is definitely where I have the strongest brand and influence and voice. Fantastic. So in the yeah, chat is a link course. to her LinkedIn. Excuse the double links. <laughs> Yes. So that was my final question as we went out, but Luigi stole it from me. So now I just don't know what to say anymore. Well played, just, Luigi. Yeah. Good job. Yes. Yeah, I applaud been, you, sir. I'm, I'm a mind reader. He, you know? he cut, cut me off to the toll road. <laughs> yes, that's right. So now I have to go yeah. to the next exit and come back. But so Mary, I thank you so much. And everybody reach out to her on LinkedIn. I've already logged into the, uh, the sales training. 
that's already here. So I suggest everybody, guys, you have somebody that has a proven success that is actually being hired and paid for by other companies who said, I put together free training for you. So go do it, right? It's it, She didn't say, right, it's only $25 a month, go through. She said, here, here's some free training for you. She's living the living proof that it works. So I would say go out, jump on to the salesbq.com, go to the sales training room up at the top, click on it and get access by giving your info. So Mary, I thank you so much. Everybody else, thanks for yeah. going on. Everybody thanks, that's Mary. out on Facebook, appreciate you all over there too. And uh, thanks so much. Take care. See you thank next you. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Mary. Appreciate it for your time. This is the Sales Genius Podcast. It's only a numbers game if you want educated. It's time to get educated.